So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will jump into the Word of God this morning. Father God, we just want to thank you and praise you for today. We thank you, Lord, for you being still our God and being on the throne, being in control, even when everything, the circumstances around us seem like everything's out of control. We know that you are still God, and we thank you for that. Father, I just lift up uh, Charlie and Jolene to you. I ask God that you intervene there uh, in a way that will bring glory and honor to you, comfort and give healing, and I pray that you'll uh, give wisdom and discernment to the medical team as they assist Miss Jolene. Father, I thank you for Johnny's report coming back negative, no COVID uh, infection in him. I uh, just uh, thank you for that. And Lord, I just uh, uh, lift up our class family to you. We pray, God, your blessings upon them. I ask that you continue to protect each one from the virus. I pray that you'll continue to provide for each one uh, their needs. Uh, and I pray that you'll just uh, help them to each one know that they're loved and not forgotten, even though sometimes being isolated, it seems like we are forgotten. So, Father, now as we approach the Word of God, we ask as the Lord Jesus did for his disciples, I pray that you'll do for us and open our understanding to the Scriptures. I ask, Lord, that you help us to accurately handle the Word of God, and I pray that you'll open our eyes of faith that we might see you. Lord, just help us to um, uh, honor you in our teaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Nothing. Nothing. Never mind. All right. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23 again this morning. Yes, I will. Luke chapter 23. We're going to continue in our study of the harmony of the Gospels. And last week, we began looking at the vicarious sufferings of Jesus Christ for us. Vicarious meaning his substitutionary death on the cross for our sin. And um, uh, we, we looked at uh, him being led away to be crucified. Uh, some things that we looked at was uh, uh, the timing. Uh, he was uh, crucified, nailed to the cross around 9 o'clock in the morning, um, which uh, being crucified fulfilled the prophecy found in Psalm 22 and verse 16, where it talks about, they pierced my hands and pierced my feet. Um, he stayed on the cross for uh, six hours. The uh, Bible says in, in Mark, uh, giving, giving us timelines that he died around the ninth hour, which is around three o'clock in the afternoon. We looked at the placement of the accusation, uh, talked about that where Pilate placed upon the cross of Jesus uh, the accusation that this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, making mockery of, uh, of, of Christ and the Jewish nation, and also uh, driving home the, the, the point that Rome had the power over uh, the Jewish nation, even to kill and crucify their king. Um, we looked at that. And then we, I think we left off at uh, the placement of Jesus, where uh, things uh, were. I think it's important. I think it's uh, needful to recognize this. Uh, according to John uh, chapter 19 and verse 18, we find that, uh, well, let me, let me back up. Hold on. Well, you can go ahead and turn to John 19. We're going to look at that in just a minute, but we're going to read verse uh, in Luke 23 and verse uh, 32 and 33 first, where Luke 23, it says, there were also two other criminals led with him, speaking of Jesus, to be put to death. Uh, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Now, uh, we find that in John chapter 19, 
John gives us a little bit more insight of that placement of Jesus. Um, John 19 and verse um, 17 and 18 says that he, Jesus, uh, uh, bearing his cross, went out to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, same as Luke, which is Calvary. And there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. I think it's uh, insightful that John writes to us that Jesus was in the center cross. He was on the center cross. Um, why is that important? Well, I think, number one, if you, re if you um, think about it, when you see an advertisement on TV, or you see something in the a magazine, you we normally focus on the center uh, place in that scene, in that picture. Or if you see a picture of a number of people, or I do, I've noticed, I go to the center of that picture and focus on the person in the middle. Uh, I think in the uh, uh, police uh, lineup and, and trying to identify uh, people and criminals and, and, and that have committed crimes when they give uh, several pictures of, of potential uh, perpetrators to, for someone to identify. Uh, it has been noted that if, if they place their an individual in the center that they think is the guilty one, usually that's who people pick. And they've been reprimanded for doing that because that's normally where people mostly focus. So we find Jesus being placed in the center cross to focus on him. Now there's a couple of other reasons. Uh, Roman uh, thought is the most notorious criminal if there's more than one being crucified at the time, the most notorious criminal will be placed in the center cross, focusing their power upon that individual. And if you'll remember, uh, when we looked at uh, Barabbas, who was released uh, in place of Jesus, he was described as being a notorious prisoner. And I think the center cross was actually intended for Barabbas. Uh, and in order to uh, drive home the, the point by Roman authorities that uh, any insurrections, any leaders of rebellion against the Roman government, this is the, uh, this is the end, this is what they will suffer. Uh, and they were really trying to deter any kind of rebellion and insurrectionist uh, actions. So we also find that um, being crucified between two other criminals, the Bible says, in Matthew 27, Matthew calls them two robbers. In Luke, it's they call two criminals. Um, we find that... Uh, uh, the, the scriptures tell us in, in Isaiah 53 and verse 12 that uh, this is actually a fulfillment of that, that Jesus or the Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors. So he is he's there in the center uh, of these two other these two criminals. It's also uh, important to note that being in the center uh, of these two, he has access to both of them. He can hear what they say. He can communicate with them if he chose to do so. Uh, they were in fairly close proximity to each other. They weren't wide spaced apart. It was all kind of confined space. So they could, he was there and could really, they could hear him, he could hear them. And that's important, I think, for us to remember. But also these two that were crucified with Jesus, according to Mark chapter 15, look with me there just a moment. Mark chapter 15, I want to remind you of something here. Mark chapter 15 and verse uh, 7, 
And it talks about, and there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. I think these two men that were crucified alongside of Christ were comrades of Barabbas. And uh, more than likely, they may have been wondering where was their leader because they knew he had been arrested. He knew, they knew that he uh, faced crucifixion. They knew uh, he had been sentenced uh, for this. And whenever they saw Jesus uh, there being crucified with him, uh, they probably had questions in their mind about that. And I speculate that that was probably some of the uh, profane verbalization of these other two men uh, when they saw that they were being crucified and their leader was not. No telling what they said, and it's probably good that we don't know. Uh, but, uh, but I'm wondering, uh, makes me wonder if after Barabbas was released from prison, free, and then realized that Jesus was being crucified in place of him, makes me wonder if Barabbas may not have been either in the crowd witnessing Jesus's crucifixion, looking upon the one who took his place on that cross, or maybe in a distance watching from afar with curious interest uh, about the man, Jesus, uh, who took his place. You know, he literally understood the substitutionary death of Jesus. He experienced that. He, looking upon that cross, could very easily have said, that should have been me. But yet Jesus took his place. So that's, uh, uh, to me, that was important to, uh, to note on that occasion. But now uh, we find, let's go to back to um, Luke chapter 23, if you would. We find that as uh, we study the crucifixion, the vicarious sufferings of the Lord Jesus, we look at these passages in the four Gospels concerning Jesus hanging on the cross. As you read this, you'll come to understand that there were uh, seven different statements spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. And I think it's important that we look at these and kind of analyze these for briefly uh, to help us understand what Jesus went through, what he did, how he handled himself uh, in this uh, horrific uh, death that he was suffering. Um, We have to look at all four of the Gospels because none of the four give us all seven. But you have to go through each one in order to obtain a more accurate picture of what transpired there those six hours that Jesus hung on the cross. But I want to give you, to start off with, all seven of these recorded statements of the Lord Jesus. And then we're going to look at each one uh, individually, briefly. Uh, as we go through this uh, study. We find that the scriptures tell us the seven sayings of the seven last words of Jesus, which are important. First one was, uh, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, found in Luke 23 and verse 34. We're going to look at that first when we begin this study. I believe the second one is found in Luke 23 also, and that's verse 43, where he says, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The third saying or statement of Jesus is found in John 19, verses 26 and 27, where the scriptures record Jesus saying, Woman, behold your son, and then speaking to one of his disciples, Behold your mother. Then I think the next saying and statement of the Lord Jesus is found in Matthew 27 and verse 46, 
where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's followed with the statement in John 19 and verse 28, I thirst. And then that's followed in John, John 19 and verse 30, where Jesus cried, it is finished. And then the final statement that the Lord Jesus spoke is found in Luke 23 and verse 46, where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So these are the seven last words and statements of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think these are important for us to go through to help us see some things uh, in the heart of Jesus, actually, even in that uh trying time and difficult circumstances. But I want to read to you uh, an excerpt of, from Dr. Charles Swindoll. He offers this insightful observation concerning these seven sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would, uh, bear with me and, and, and take note and listen to them. And you'll, I think you'll grasp some... Uh, uh, insights as well from Dr. Swindoll. And he said, he wrote, Christ hung on the cross for six hours before he died. He was there from nine in the morning until three in the afternoon. From nine until noon, it was daylight. At noon, you will recall a strange and eerie darkness blanketed the skies and the this darkness lasted until three in the afternoon. This timing is significant because Christ's seven last statements fall into two groups. The first three were said during daylight. The last four were uttered after darkness came over the land. The first three sayings had to do with other people. The last four had to do with Jesus himself. The first three had to do with his horizontal relationships with others around him. The last four had to do with his vertical relationship with God. The first three had to do with his compassion for others. The last four had to do with his suffering and the meaning of his death. That was pretty insightful, I thought, uh, that he analyzed those sayings and put that together to help us see some significance in that. And I think as we study these different sayings, we're going to find um, even more uh, for that. So let's go, uh, let's begin in uh, Luke 23 and verse 34. I'm going to back up with verse 33 and, and start with that and read verse 34. It says, uh, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Now, this was, um, this is interesting. Because as I've read the accounts of crucifixion, most victims of crucifixion, when they spoke, they spoke blasphemy. They spoke profanity. They were cursing their, their executors. They, they spoke obscenities to the crowd below them as they were mocking him, mocking them. Uh, this was the normal response to those being crucified. They didn't have anything good to say. But now Jesus comes and he begins something different. He prays, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. So let's look at that just a moment. That's an interesting uh, statement, uh, that uh, prayer actually, that Jesus prayed, you know, Personally, I would be praying, Lord, get me out of this. Lord, uh, help me not to feel this pain. Lord, you know, strike them dead, something. 
I wouldn't, I probably would not have prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't, do not know what they do. But Jesus did. This shows us an insight of the heart that he has for people. First of all, it's need, we need to see that this fulfills scripture. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, it ends with saying, he interceded for the transgressors. He prayed for those that were transgressing him, uh, uh, crucifying him. He was praying for them. That is a messianic prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. But we also go a step further. This also fulfills some of Jesus' own teaching. If you'll recall in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44, if you want to turn there just briefly, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44, listen to what the Lord Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 and verse 44. Let's, let's read, include verse 43. He says, Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, Jesus was practicing what he preached. He preached, pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. And we find that the Lord Jesus, as he is being crucified, nails driven into his wrist, driven into his feet. He had been beaten. He had, had crown of thorns beaten down upon his head. We find this situation that Jesus was in, he chose to pray for those who were persecuting him, who was inflicting all this pain upon him. Now, the, the original language, the Greek, implies that Jesus prayed this continuously. He didn't just say this one time. He prayed this throughout his crucifixion time. And we're going to see some more of that here in just a moment. But first and foremost, he prayed for those executioners. <clears throat> the Roman soldiers, whenever they uh, were assigned to uh, uh, the execution squad, there was usually a centurion, uh, a captain, if you would. <clears throat> and he had four Roman soldiers that would accompany him uh, to the place of crucifixion. And they would; these four soldiers would be the ones that would take uh, these the victims and nail them to the cross. <clears throat> and as they were nailing him to Jesus to the cross, um, Jesus was praying, "Father, forgive them, for they do not want, know what they do." Now that was uncommon for them to hear anything like that. Uh, when the other two were being crucified. I dare say they were not praying, Father, forgive them. They were cursing the, the soldiers. They were uh, saying all kind of obscenities, I'm sure, uh, to these men. They were claiming their innocence. Uh, all kinds of stuff was going on. But we find that the Lord Jesus sincerely prayed for those who were crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, these. Uh, these four soldiers, these five soldiers, actually the centurion was there as well, heard Jesus's prayer. And I'm sure, uh, even though it may not at first resonated to them uh, what Jesus was saying, after he continued to pray, I'm sure that they took notice. The uh, reason I think that is because uh, the Bible says, uh, in Matthew 27 and verse 36, that the soldiers sat down and watched him. They sat down at the, at the foot of the cross, if you would, to watch uh, the, the people that were being crucified. Now, that wasn't to guard them and keep them from escaping. They were nailed to the cross. They weren't going anywhere. The criminals were not going anywhere. Or those being crucified, the victims. 
I believe it was there to watch. I believe what Jesus had prayed and his his countenance, his attitude while he was being crucified was of such that it was blowing their minds away, that they had never experienced something like that. These were hardened soldiers. Uh, they were used to death. They were they knew what it was to make people suffer, and they knew basically the response of most people when they were going through suffering like that. And Jesus was responding in some way totally uh, polar opposite of what they were used to, and they it piqued their interest. I believe that they were um, definitely um, uh, interested in what was going on with, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible says that they uh, took his clothes and they began to gamble over them. Now, let me just briefly say something about this. We're going to get to that a little bit more in de uh, depth a little bit later. Uh, but these uh, soldiers, the centurion and the four Roman soldiers, the four soldiers that were instruments of the execution, part of their pay for their service was to take the worldly possessions of the victims that they crucified, which all they had at that time was their clothing, was their clothing. So they stripped these victims before they nailed them to the cross stripped them of all their clothing and that was part of the humiliation and shame uh, of the crucifixion uh, but uh, they would take and they would usually gamble over who would uh, take what piece but we find that the jewish uh, from what i've read jewish men usually wore about five pieces of clothing they would wear a headpiece which would be like a turban or a scarf around their head they would have a pair of sandals on, usually. Uh, they would have an outer robe that loosely fit over the body. Uh, they would have a girdle, what was called a girdle, actually what we would prefer, refer to as a belt that would tighten the, the outer robe around the body. And then they would have their undergarment, or it's called a tunic as well. So there was five pieces of clothing that the Jewish men usually wore, and we find that I believe Jesus had these. Uh, now they had been stripped off of Jesus, and each one, and we find in the scriptures that they didn't want to tear the clothing. They each one took a piece of the clothing with them, but that left one piece, and that was the undergarment or the tunic. And they, instead of uh, tearing that into four pieces and dividing it among them and it being useless, they decided to cast lots and roll the dice, if you would, to gamble to see who would take that piece of clothing. <clears throat> I'm told, or I've read, that the, the centurion, the captain, if you would, usually didn't participate in this. Uh, he was paid enough. He didn't need to, to take the clothing. So he wouldn't uh, participate in this, this act. So it was the four soldiers that were doing this. And I think all the while, Jesus was praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, um, we begin to look at this just a moment. As Jesus was being crucified, and he was praying for his executioners, there was two other men being crucified with him. I believe each one of these men heard Jesus' response as well, his prayer. Now, we're going to read in just a little bit that these other two men were speaking ill. They were bad. In fact, they ended up joining the crowd of mocking and ridiculing and blaspheming Jesus, reviling him. And Jesus was all the while praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So the criminals heard. And I think as we're going as we're going to eventually get there, I believe this is one of the reasons that one of those victims, those criminals, sought Jesus' forgiveness, because he 
viewed, he saw in progress, in actual vivid living detail, the difference of Jesus and himself. What a contrast, differences day and night of how they both responded to what they were going through. They were both suffering the same way, but Jesus responded in a different way than the, the other criminals. So let's look just a moment briefly at uh, the prayer that Jesus prayed. Uh, let's look at this just a moment. This is uh, uh, Jesus, first of all, he says, he, verse 34 of Luke 23, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. The first thing you see is Jesus addressed his prayer to the Father. This was not uncommon with Jesus because all throughout the Gospels, throughout the recorded public ministry of Jesus, of his life here on earth, he addressed God as Father. Even in as his, his age of 12, whenever he was found in the temple conversing with the teachers and the, the leaders there by Joseph and Mary after they searched for him for a couple of days, uh, he said, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? So he was always addressing God as father. And many times throughout the, his public ministry and his messages and his prayers, he always referred to the father. So this was not uncommon, but I think you'll find that his first and his last statement on the cross, he addresses God as father. Now that's important important to keep in the back of your mind because we're going to find as we go through these statements that he addresses the father in a different way later on in the middle but he addresses him as father uh, he also makes a specific request he prays father forgive them he prays specifically for their forgiveness now that doesn't mean that uh, I don't believe that means that that uh, takes away the responsibility of these men for their actions, but he's, he's letting the father know that he does not hold any bitterness and uh, hatred or resentment against them. He is forgiving them of what they are doing. And one of the things that, that we do when we pray for God to forgive people that have abused us or misused us or done us wrong, is that we free ourselves from that that weight. We free ourselves from that burden. We free ourselves from that chain of bondage and that wraps around our spirit and soul and ends up uh, uh, causing a spirit of bitterness and hardness and hatred within us. When we pray to forgive people, then we are, are releasing ourselves from that that. Uh, that barrier, that chain. And Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Now he's being crucified. He's being put to death. He knows he's about to die. And he's praying, forgive them, Father. Now, you say, well, he's Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's divine. He is the God-man. He can do that. He's able to do that. He will... He was God in the flesh, but I would never be able to do that. I'd never be able, we might say in our own mind, I'd never be able to do that, but it's humanly impossible to do that. But yet we find biblical example that it is possible for a man just like, or a human just like us, to be able to do the same thing that Jesus did and follow his example. Look with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 in verse 8, we are introduced to a man by the name of Stephen. Acts chapter 6 in verse 8. It says, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And we find as we continue to read about that, especially in chapter 7, 
we read that he's in encounters the the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers, if you would. He's called in court. He's called on the carpet. He is challenged. He is arrested. He is he is uh, reprimanded uh, for preaching and and doing the work of Jesus. And we find that that uh, Stephen gives probably a one of the greatest sermons recorded. He really begins to uh, go systematically through the Old Testament in, in, in the way God works with his people and, and everything. And we find that he preaches a powerful message there. And um, we get to the end of it in verse 54 of Acts chapter 7. Look with me there in Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. Stephen has ended his speech, his address to the religious rulers. And it says in verse 54 of Acts 7, and when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted deeply about what he said. And you can take time later on to read that. I, I would encourage you to do so. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, and therein lies the difference, being full of the Holy Spirit, and we're commanded in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit, be under the control of the Spirit. And he was full of the Spirit. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, interesting that this is probably the only place that I can recall in my mind at this time that Jesus is seen standing at the right hand of the Father. Usually he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. But here Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. And of course, it's all speculation on my part, but I believe he's standing in honor of the first martyr for the cause of Christ, for the gospel. And Stephen was the first person to uh, be martyred, if you would, uh, for preaching the gospel and for the cause of Christ. And it says, it goes on to say, and he, and he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord. They all, at the same time, began to jump on him. They didn't want to listen. They didn't want to hear anything that Stephen had to say. Ron, you got something, man? <clears throat> yeah, Stephen was a Samaritan. Say that one more time, sir. Stephen, <clears throat> excuse me, Stephen was a Samaritan. That made a big difference, too. He was speaking to a Jewish audience. They didn't like that. Yeah, they thought that he was beneath them to start with. You know, so that's right. Good point. But then it says that they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Now, here's what, here's what we need to see. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, verse 59, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Fell in, fallen asleep is a euphemism for a Christian's physical death. So we find that Stephen basically prayed the same prayer that Jesus is praying in Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. So we find that biblical example, we can pray that same prayer. We can have that same attitude when someone is persecuting us and despitefully using us, we can pray for them if we are full of the Holy Spirit, if we are under the control of the Holy Spirit, if we are surrendered in our heart and mind and spirit to the Holy Spirit of God, then we can pray that same prayer, have that same attitude of forgiveness for those of our enemies. So we see the example uh, a human example for us. And of course, Jesus was a God-man. He was 100% human, just like we are. But I wanted you to see someone else example uh, given to us by scriptures. So 
we're called upon by the Lord to be different. We as Christians are called to be different. Now, I don't know if you've realized that or accepted that or not, but we, when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we claim the name of Christ. We say we're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called upon to be different. And how is that? Someone says, uh, uh, Swindoll writes, he said, anyone can love the lovely. Anyone can forgive the forgivable. But Christians are unique. We're called to love the unlovely and to forgive the unforgivable. Jesus' followers have done this for centuries. All throughout, if you read church history, you study church history, you'll find that church history is uh, filled with the blood of martyrs. And many accounts of people dying for the cause of Christ have given record of their attitude, of their persecutors, of praying for them to be forgiven, to God not to lay this to their charge, and so on. They were they would respond in a loving, compassionate way uh, to their uh, enemies that that have either was burning them at the stake or or crucifying them or or beheading them something. Uh, many of them died in different ways. In fact, in the Roman Colosseum, there'd be many that would be given to be torn by the beast, lions and stuff, and yet they would be praying for those persecutors, those people that were uh, having them put to death. We can have that attitude if we have the Lord in our heart in such a way that he controls our thoughts and our tongues. So Jesus made a specific request, Father, forgive them. But he also prayed for specific people. Uh, he said them. Uh, now, of course, uh, the primary, I think, the primary object of his prayer were those that were executing him, those four soldiers that were holding him down or nailing him to the cross and, and mistreating him. Uh, uh, it, it, definitely he prayed for them and they heard they took notice eventually but I also want to take you to Matthew chapter 27 I want you to look at something here that's very interesting to me or was that I saw in regards to him praying I believe that Jesus was praying for these as well he is praying for the executioners, but also in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 38 through 44. Listen to what the scriptures tell us here. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand, the other, another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him and said the same thing. So I believe that when Jesus was praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He was not only praying for his four executioners or his five executioners, including the centurion, but he was also praying for those who were mocking him, the, the crowd that were mocking him. Notice, if you would, the mockery that they uh, uh, spew at him. They, they mocked Jesus for who he really was and who he really is. Number one, they mocked him as a savior. It says that he saved, verse 42, he saved others, him himself, himself he cannot save. So they were mocking him as a savior. Jesus would pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We, we see that uh, 
uh, in verse 42, they was mocking him as a king. Uh, if he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. We see uh, in verse uh, 43, they mocked him as one who trusted in God. It says, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then they mocked him for being the son of God. Verse 40 and 43, verse 40 says, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 43, he said, I am the son of God. They mocked him for being the son of God. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And notice, if you would, in verse 44, even the robbers that were crucified with him joined in with the crowd that were mocking Jesus and said the same thing. In fact, it seems the focus of everyone on Golgotha was centered on the center cross. The focus was on the center cross and the man hanging there, which was Jesus Christ. And Jesus cried, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So he was also praying, I believe, for them. But I think also he was also praying for those that were responsible for his crucifixion. The religious leaders that brought, arrested him and brought him to Pilate and gave him over into the hands of the Roman government for Pilate and those that were in authority uh, that led to his crucifixion. I believe he is praying for them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So he was praying uh, for specific people. I think he was praying. Uh, for those, anyone that had a part in his crucifixion. But I also see that he prayed, he his prayer identifies the reason for that request. They do not know what they do. I think he's referring to their spiritual blindness, their spiritual ignorance concerning uh, his identity. Now, I note also, <clears throat> let me qualify this a little bit, I believe that they, the religious leaders definitely understood his claim of deity. I believe that they knew uh, what Jesus was saying without any shadow of a doubt that he was saying he was God in the flesh, the son of God. He put himself on the same uh, platform as God himself. I and my father are one. He, he, he said that. <clears throat> he talked about his uh, being uh, before Abraham was, I am. They understood that. On several occasions, when he made statements like that, they were moved to anger to try to uh, take his life because they considered that blasphemy, him, a man, <clears throat> in their opinion, making himself as God. So they understood his claim, but they still were spiritually blinded. Now, in, in the, in, I don't have time now to go to it, but in Corinthians, I believe it's chapter four, second Corinthians chapter four, it talks about uh, Paul was writing to the church of Corinth about those that, that Satan had blinded, uh, put a veil over their eyes, blinded them to the truth of the scripture. And he was praying that they would have that veil lifted so they could see spiritual truth. And, uh, we, we find that I believe that's something that was taking place and transpiring here uh, as well. And Jesus was praying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. So he was, he was asking the Father uh, for that specific reason. The scriptures tell us or we, we come to understand in the New Testament, especially with, with, with the Jesus and the apostles, that they, they referred to the scriptures as being the Old Testament. Uh, and we, all the Old Testament is, is important for us to have an understanding of so we could see Jesus coming to be the fulfilling of the Messiah that was prophesied. And 
many times people, uh, and, and I understand that some of it's very difficult. In fact, I was reading uh, in my morning Bible reading this morning in Ezekiel. Some of that is just really hard to understand and comprehend. So you really have to study it to, to dig, dig it out. But I believe that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the Word of God and the truth as we are growing and maturing in our relationship with Christ. So, but we find that Jesus was praying this. Interestingly, I believe he is including the, the religious teachers, leaders of that nation and claiming they do not know what they do, claiming their ignorance to the truth of scriptures. In fact, uh, case in point, Nicodemus, John chapter three, he came to Jesus by night and asked him, uh, talked to him, and Jesus told him, you must be born again. And one of the responses that Jesus made to Nicodemus said, uh, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things. Now, he had an understanding of the Old Testament, but yet he was still blinded. The veil was still over his spiritual eyes that he could not see the truth of his need for that, that personal, intimate relationship with God through the Messiah, through the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of the same things was going on here. But Jesus, his first prayer, and I think his continuous prayer throughout his crucifixion was, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Not only did he teach that, that we should forgive our persecutors, but he also exemplified that in the most vivid way when he was being crucified on the cross. And Peter says that we have Jesus who gave us the example that we should follow in his steps. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a lesson, what a truth this morning. Help us, Lord, to be so full of the Holy Spirit that we would be able to have an attitude, a spirit of forgiveness for those who mistreat us, persecute us, despitefully use us, maybe even try to put us to death for the cause of Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example. We thank you, Father, for the gift of eternal life through Jesus our Lord. Thank you for this time in the word. Help us to allow it to make root in our heart and spirit that we might grow in our understanding of you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.